0: Yo, 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 yo! What's up, millionaire interview listener? Obviously, you're a smart guy or gal because you listen to this podcast. But do yourself a favor and go ahead and listen to episode one. It's a five minute long mix of our first 50 interviews. So go ahead, press pause right now, and we'll be waiting here for you when you get back. See you in five minutes. Glad you're back. Now, Let's get on to the show.
1: Why don't you focus and make an impact here in a big way? Entrepreneurs habitually underprice their own offerings, so I admit, I'd wasted like ninety to hundred grand we had nothing to show for it. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm the CEO of YNAB it stands for You Need a Budget. We teach people four rules to help them manage their money a lot better. They're focused on getting out of debt, saving more money, just getting rid of a lot of the money stress while still not living a life of austerity, but one where you, you know, you feel like you can live the life you really want, but hit your financial goals. So we do a lot of teaching and then uh, we've built some software that we're really proud of. Then uh, that's how we make the money is with the software. So we teach for free and then we sell people software to help them implement what we teach as far as those four rules go.
0: And is that software just something on top of an Excel spreadsheet or what is it?
1: No, it used to be back in the day. I first launched with a spreadsheet way back. And that was, I guess, a good proof of concept, although I wasn't smart enough to think I was doing a proof of concept at the time. But now it's it's a web-based app. It's, you know, we've got mobile apps, tablet and everything. So it's, uh, you know, it's kind of cutting edge now. People can log in wherever they are in the world and make sure their money's lining up with their priorities and doing what they want it to do. How old are you today? Uh, I'm 36.
0: So you're saying about 26 is when you went ahead and started it?
1: Actually, I was 23. It was, uh, yeah, in the 2004. Yeah, crazy. So out of college,
0: did you just jump into doing this? And can you tell us the lead up into the company and why you started it?
1: Yeah, well, I started it to pay my rent. That was the real, that was the big vision, you know? So you always want to start a company on a really big vision. And mine was to pay my rent. No, I, I started it while I was still in school, actually. I had about two years left. I was studying accounting, was feeling good about it, and uh, looked like my job prospects were solid, but I, I still had two years left of school, and my wife and I... We were newlywed. About a year after we got married, we had a baby. And the baby, combined with our tight finances, combined with two years left of school, and then having to pay rent, you know, that made me realize that I needed to make some money on the side somehow. So I ran it by my wife, Julie. I just said, hey, do you think we could maybe sell this system that you and I have developed and we could make enough money to at least pay rent each month? And she said, no, I don't think that would work. So we did it anyway. And yeah, here we are today. So it's just been this very slow process. We never have taken funding or things like that. But, you know, that was, I guess, now at this point, 13 years ago. And I just kind of clawed and clawed for a long time. And then, I mean, to give people a perspective, like started the company, I was working on the side, I was going to school full time. And then I was working on my CPA license, wrapped up school, graduated with a master's degree in accounting. All while running YNAB on the side, and started working a, at a big accounting firm down in Texas. Still running YNAB on the side, and finally, about 2007, middle. So three years, you know, after I'd started, I thought, oh, this thing has enough legs. I could maybe quit my job at this accounting firm and go full fledged. It was a gradual, like very iterative process for me. I'm not a big risk taker. I've realized at the end of the day.
0: Could you tell us, I guess, what made you decide that you could sell this and kind of we understand, I guess, why you're doing it. It was all on an Excel spreadsheet at first. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, it was. So, I mean, we had just worked off of we, you know, we were money was tight for me and Julie. And so when we first married, I just said, hey, let's do this. Let's follow a budget. let's, And we just kind of learned as we went, like what worked, what didn't. And I realized after a while that our friends were asking us questions like, how do you guys do this? How do you do that? And so it just kind of looked like there was a need. And of course, there's a need for people to manage their money better. I think that'll always be the case. And uh, I just I had enough ego to think, oh, other people need to buy what I've built. And so I, I built more and prepped it for selling. But it was originally just a spreadsheet that I would sell. Uh, I think it priced it originally at $10 and nobody bought it. So I bumped it up to $20 and people actually started buying it at that point. Just little, you know, here and there. It wasn't like people were banging down my door or anything. But uh, yeah, the the original product was a spreadsheet and uh, me just teaching the method, you know, how we thought about our money. And that really ended up being more important than the actual tool that we were selling.
0: Well, could you tell us why you made that tweak and, you know, jumping from 10 to 20? Was there some logic behind there? You're just trying it out.
1: Yeah. I mean, well, the logic was no one was buying at 10, right? So you might think, oh, you should lower the price, the price too high. But, entrepreneurs habitually underprice their own offerings. So I was chatting with a friend casually. We were riding the bus on the way home and he's like, oh, your price too low. People are just going to think it's garbage if it's only 10 bucks. So, you know, you should bump it up, maybe $20. So I went home, I changed the price to $20. And that day I actually got my first sale. I had to refund it because it didn't work on this lady's Macintosh computer. That was, that was a separate thing, but uh, still got the sale. Right. And yeah, so we ended up keeping it at 20 for a while. And we ran selling that spreadsheet for about a year and it just kind of picked up steam. And then um, I, I ran into a guy that's now the CTO of YNAB and uh, we just met through email and he's the one that offered to help me out. And so we started working out, you know, a full fledged software package.
0: When you set up the website, was it a WordPress website or how did you know how to do that?
1: Oh, no, WordPress. I don't think people knew about WordPress as much back then. I certainly didn't. So it was 04. I just wrote it all in raw HTML. Uh, I had to learn how to do it, but that wasn't, I mean, that's not that, you know, terribly hard. So yeah, I just wrote all the pages from scratch. And then I think about a year and a half or two years in, I discovered WordPress. And saw how much better it would be if I I were using that. So I ended up, I remember transitioning my whole static site over to WordPress, which was a little bit of a hassle. But, uh, you know, that was how I ran it. But yeah, I had to teach myself the marketing side, how to write the copy. And it was atrocious copy at first. But, yeah, you just kind of teach as you go or teach yourself to go along and ship stuff fast and then perfect later. And that really helped me just kind of keep moving. And you have to have a little bit of ego in there to think that you have something people want and to think that your ideas are are worth something. And so if you get a little bit of ego and you can push that through, yeah, you just ship stuff and keep improving it and be patient. And I don't know, it it worked out well for me, at least so far.
0: Were you doing any SEO or how did that first person find you on the web? Because he kept saying you're getting more customers.
1: Yeah, the first traffic was through AdWords, which is fairly new system at the time. And the traffic was dirt cheap, so I set aside sixty bucks, was sixty three from our budget, and I said, "Hey, Julie, I want to use this money." Things were so unbelievably tight, but she goes, "Okay, yeah, let's let's do it." And I took the sixty three dollars, put it into my AdWords account, learned how that you know worked, which back then it was way easier than it is now. Just just understanding the system, not not the competition, so much more powerful now. So I started out with AdWords and was able to buy traffic at you know five cents a click, which I think was the minimum that you you, know, you could pay and then uh, got enough traffic to see that it was viable and also started trying to do some SEO and things like that. And that also was when SEO, I felt like uh, mattered or than it does now, at least in the way people maybe traditionally think about it.
0: Was it the first full year or after you went full time when you hired the CTO? Uh,
1: just after the first full year. So I was still very much part time, just up on the side. I hired him as a contractor and he just worked on the software kind of as a moonlighting project with his own gig. And uh, we ne- I never could have afforded paying someone full-time at that point.
0: Well, how'd you find him? And then how'd y'all hook up to start, I guess, making your product a little bit better?
1: So he uh, wrote to me and he-, he liked the method. He liked the four rules that we taught. He just said, hey, I think I could improve your spreadsheet. I'm a developer. We could give it some more features and do this or that thing. I told him I really didn't want the spreadsheet. I would rather have a standalone piece of software. And he said, I could write that. And so we went back and forth and negotiated a project price for it, and kind of milestones along the way, and then he and I would just hop on the phone regularly and discuss features and how it should work. And he would he would send me a new build, and I would look at it and give him feedback, and we just go back and forth. There wasn't really screen sharing back then, or Skype, or heavens, there wasn't Google Hangouts or anything like that. And so even taking screenshots to show me was a little bit arduous for him. But we, um yeah, we got it done. So he would just send me new builds, and we would talk on the phone and. It worked out. It it was uh, from concept, you know, kind of like agreement to ship. It took us nine months to do the first version.
0: And what did you learn um, with that when you were telling, I guess, also your customers that you're kind of, I guess, switching from Excel to the software and your first iteration, sending it out? Did you have any issues with it?
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, natural software issues, nothing that was too crazy. The customers were dying for it. It had more features. It was more. Robust. Uh, it was easier to use than the spreadsheet. It was faster. They, there was just this slam dunk value proposition. I think we originally launched it at 40 bucks instead of the 20. We called it YNAB Pro to distinguish it from the spreadsheet version. Yeah, it worked out, worked out well. So the customers wanted it. And I think overnight, we essentially doubled our sales. Everything about it was better. Customers converted at a higher rate. They were paying us twice as much money. Um, we were providing far more value. So it really worked out. You know, from every angle.
0: I'm looking at old screenshots of it. So what, was it still almost look like a an Excel spreadsheet to an extent? Oh, very much
1: so. Yeah, like we, we caught, I mean, we liked the UI. We were like, man, this UI is fast. You can move around really quick and get your budget adjusted really fast. So we really just kind of said, hey, the UI looks good as a spreadsheet. And let's kind of port it over and still, you know, look at it from a grid perspective. And uh, and we did. Even to this day, we still really like that grid format. It's very fluid, very fast. So people still say, oh, it's a fancy spreadsheet. It's it's far more than that now, although it's fine if they think of it that way.
0: Right. No, yeah, I agree. You can have it all on one page, kind of like what you have it. what a whole year with the income and then it's just easier to put in the expenses, it looks yeah. like, at least in your initial version. I mean, just having yeah. kind of one page or you know, me looking at it on your initial version seems like it'd be pretty easy because once you start going to yeah. multiple tabs, you start getting issues, right?
1: Exactly, and and, you know there were major design flaws with our first, second, third iteration. Even today, we have design flaws that we're trying to fix. But you, you know, you get it out there, and if people are giving you money, you you accept that as like a vote for your work, and then you just keep trying to do better work and keep moving the thing along. So our first spreadsheet, I felt, you know, it's atrocious. It looks horrible. It has no design concept at all as far as aesthetics go. But you can even see in that from really ugly to maybe not quite as ugly as you move along things get better over time. And I think far too often people delay shipping because they want it to be perfect. And that just doesn't exist. You
0: know? When you went full-time, how much money did you? were you actually like making that first year? Can you compare it to, I guess, your job before? Were you making about the same?
1: Yeah, when I finally jumped ship from my full-time gig as an accountant over to wineab uh, I did a little bit of a transition. I took a consulting deal with uh, some friends and that kind of helped me just feel even more comfortable with it. But at the time, wineup was probably making twice what I was at my job, if I remember right, maybe even a little more. So you could you can just see how nervous I was to to leave like this, you know, supposedly really secure job and go out and do my own thing. And it just turns out it wasn't nearly as risky as as I thought. I think we overestimate the risk, as long as you're not borrowing a bunch of money.
0: Do you hate moving? If you're like me, then that's a yes. You have to either call some unreliable company to help or just do it yourself. Well, now there's a new option. Bellhops Moving. They're a different type of moving company. But Austin, how are they different? Tell me more. Well, they have an app where you can book online in minutes. They have a labor force of hardworking college students. They have a near-perfect customer rating based on 23,000 reviews. And they're 25% less than the other guys. So go ahead and Google Bellhops Moving find out more about their awesome service now back to the show psych if you want to learn more about bellhops then tune into episode 60 where i actually interview one of the founders now back to the show When you were transitioning over to, I mean, how were you making any recurring revenue or were you just selling based on this new software? Can you tell us kind of the revenue model and how it's kind of expanded since the beginning?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we now offer, you know, we're, we're selling a subscription. But back then until just almost, you know, a year and a half ago, we were just selling a, what they call a perpetual license. So you sell them the software. They give you money once. You give them the software once. They get that version. They get minor updates, and then every once in a while, we would issue a major upgrade and ask them to pay, you know, ask customers to pay an upgrade, and that was how we stayed stayed alive from from 2004 until the end of 2015.
0: Yes, can you kind of walk us through from when the CTO up until now? Like I said, just kind of telling us how you expanded and what other stories that we could learn from.
1: Yeah, so um, I hired the CTO at full time. His name's Taylor. I hired him uh, in 2008. And one thing that was interesting, I actually still was kind of doing other side things. I just had my, my hands in a lot of stuff, never liking the idea of just having one deal be like the money maker for my family. So when I hired Taylor, he actually became the first full time, you know, this is his only gig, uh, employee, uh, at YNAB. And then about 2009, I really focused. And removed a lot of the other distractions, other stuff I was doing to make money, just, just side things. It was like I was just had 10 side things going on. And so I really tried to eliminate those and recognize like, Hey, why not has some real potential instead of just going around and doing like all these small time things and keeping your hands and all this stuff. Why don't you focus and make an impact here in a big way? I'm glad I did. So. I, I think there's something to be said for that focus and just living and breathing something for a, an extended amount of time. And uh, it took me a little while to learn that, but uh, I'm glad that I, you know, I made the switch and kind of said no to a lot more stuff that was uh, on my plate, you know, at the time. So I cleaned that off and and went full steam ahead. We hired very slowly. I was mortified of hiring second full time engineers. So Taylor was obviously the first. And it just took me forever. And then finally, Taylor just said, listen, man, I can't do all the work that we have to do. We've we've got to hire some help. And so we hired another engineer. And that was probably in... I mean, Taylor was in 08. And the next engineer, I think, was in 2010. You know, we hire contractors here and there, but I hadn't made the commitment of hiring someone full-time.
0: Let's say in 2010, you had about two people. It's 2017 now. So have you expanded since then?
1: Oh, yeah. Um, I think now... Between part-time and full-time, we have part-time customer support reps and part-time teachers that run our workshops. And then, uh, we have, you know, full-time engineers, designers, marketers, things like that. And I think total headcount were at maybe 56 or so. Yeah. It's picked up in the last couple of years in particular. It's really picked up. I think we doubled our headcount in 2016, which not, it's not my favorite thing to do. I love our whole team. I love every person on it. So that's great, but. It's just, you know, when you add more people, you get more, uh, more stress, a little more complexity, be a little more intentional with your communication. Yeah. Expanding in that way, I don't see as always like this great thing. You just have to, be really intentional about it.
0: Could you talk about that stress and well, I guess when the expansion started to happen, mainly, I guess, like you said, two years ago, because that's something you don't really think about till it gets to that point. And I definitely understand what you're saying when you're trying to hire that first full time or second full time, that seems like a different leap than two to if you're growing a team to 30 and 50. Cause today you say you do mostly management today, it seems like. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so can you tell us about that transition and what you've learned through that time?
1: Um, I, I, what you really, well, one thing is it, get, it does get easier. So you hire your first, your second, your third, every one of them gets easier than the one before. And so that's nice because you, you do get accustomed to it. I mean, even letting the first person go, uh, insanely difficult for me just because I, I just couldn't imagine doing it. And I had to have like mentoring from like a peer group of CEOs where they all kind of walked me through it and said like, listen, man, this is a part of what you do when you own a business. And we walked through that whole thing. So. The hiring and the firing, that, that part was, uh, scary. And as you do it, the firing doesn't ever get easier, but you do see it more clearly than you did before. So I guess in that way, it does make it easier. But on the hiring front, the more you do it, the better you get. And then as far as managing that goes to your, um, you know, the second part of your question, it really comes down to structure and thinking really hard, not just about The right people but about the right structure for your organization like what does the seat look like jim collins talks about that the seats on the bus or whatever you want to call it but the idea like do we have the right person in the right seat like the perfect role for that person where they're really going to shine and thinking hard about structure and how things are organized and how they will grow and then revisiting that structure like every six months Or every three months, if you're really growing fast is key because the first thing you realize is, you know, you get, you get a structure set up and then you change it three months later. So you have to be really fluid with it and just say, okay, right now, given our situation, the best way you can do is, is this. And then we know that in three months, we're going to change our mind and that's totally okay. So you got to be really adaptable you just with how things are going, layers of management.
0: And so you said you're up to about 56 people today. Is that, is everyone in one building or how, how's, you have remote no. workers? How's that go?
1: Yeah, it's super quiet here at the office. It's me and then my assistants here, Caitlin and, uh, and my COO. He's normally here, but he's on vacation. So it's super quiet here at, at headquarters and there's only ever three people here.
0: And where's headquarters? Just so people know.
1: Yeah, we're in Utah just south of Salt Lake a little. So everyone works remotely other than that, and that's been another interesting, you know, interesting aspect to it. Uh where Taylor and I originally did really good work remotely and so we just didn't discount it as this impossible thing entertained it going forward. And then when we hired our next person, we just thought, hey, remote's worked for me and Taylor. Why won't it work for another hire? And we just kept that same mentality. And uh, here you know, here we are today. Everyone's remote works out really well.
0: How do you work with those remote workers? I mean, are you hiring them through like Upwork as contractors basically? And what's your communication like with them?
1: Uh, so as far as they're, the hiring goes, they're, they uh, they work for Wyndham. They're not contractors, okay. so they're employees. If they work internationally, we, they are technically contractors just because we couldn't do it any other way. We'd have to be in several countries as well, which would be impossible for a company of our size. We're basically an employer in the United States, I think in 25 or 26 states. It's a little, it's a little bit of a hassle just paperwork wise, but you know, it's worth it. So we have those people and it depends on the job description. If you're a support rep, then you have a shift, you know, you have like a, a dedicated time that you work and. You have a shift manager and, and all of that. If you're more of a, like a designer or an engineer, um, we all have agreed upon, fairly agreed upon work hours, but we're super flexible with it. So I don't know. I just give people a lot of autonomy and it seems if you hire the right people that appreciate the autonomy, uh, in turn, they give you back, you know, really great work. So communication wise, we make sure we have regular meetings. Uh, we don't see meetings as a bad thing unless it's a bad meeting. Right. But, um, we, we have methods around kind of quarterly goals and staying on on cadence with those goals and uh, communicating those goals out to the entire team. We use Slack a lot for team communication, email very, very little to almost none. When we're hiring, uh, communication-wise, we do it all virtually ex- until we get to a final candidate or two. And then we actually have them come out. We meet them face-to-face just in case, you know, so... And then we meet up once a year for a, a big retreat, you know, make sure we connect that way because it's it's meaningful for the team.
0: And for those listeners who are like thinking about expanding their business, whether they're one freelancer and trying to hire their first one or maybe they're maybe they got a couple. I mean, what advice do you have for them when you were doing that and what issues did you have at one point and how to get over it?
1: Advice. I would well, a couple of things. You want to really make sure that you attract the right people so you want to make sure that you've defined who that right person is from a from a values standpoint like from an attribute standpoint not skills so there are if you've got a freelancer and she works this way or that way she needs to basically define these values that she works with like for ours we 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 have these values that are like your people are genuine when when you work at YNAB like you don't you don't have like a wineab persona and then your normal persona and then your hobby like everyone's just just genuine like they just are themselves they're comfortable in their own skin um we have another attribute that we go after where we say it's confidently humble like it's okay to be wrong like i don't see being wrong as being as anything bad and so we have this very and there are other attributes i won't go through them all but what we've done is we've defined what those are and that's that's the first step in hiring you define what those attributes are that you're looking for and then you create questions that let the person tell you or not if they have those attributes and so we have this we call it the cultural questionnaire and it's probably 25 30 questions we're always changing it it takes people maybe two hours to complete you know a candidate we don't give this to every candidate we give it to uh, kind of like the next stage and that cultural questionnaire susses out for us a lot of the time if they're a good fit with those core values. So it's easy to find people with the skills. It's far harder to find people that jive with you on that kind of softer way. And so you, you just don't neglect that that aspect of it. It's game changer. Any
0: horror stories or anything on, on a remote worker or you you as a hire? Oh. Like because, I mean, people kind of connect with that. And I imagine if you have up to 56 people, there's obviously been good hires and bad hires. So
1: Yeah, there have been some that weren't as great as others. Uh, I'd be hesitant to say anything specifically just because I wouldn't want to.
0: You don't have to say the person or anything, but I mean, can you give us examples of held on to somebody too long when you know you're showing it
1: That for sure. Yeah. That's multiple times. So, and that was more just inexperience on my part in running the business. It, you know, as soon as you realize a person needs to go, that's the day that you, you have to let them go. Like it's really important that you identify is this like, where is this person missing? it? Are they missing it on the core values? And can we teach them? Can we tell them and they can fix behavior? Or are they missing it in the role? Like, do they fit as a person, but like skill wise, they're just missing it. And so if you define that there, when it's a skill issue, you either have to go in eyes wide open saying, okay, we're going to patiently wait for this person to acquire the skills, and they're going to demonstrate that they're acquiring them, or we let them go. But you don't want to uh, a situation where you recognize that there's a deficiency and then uh, you just let it drag on and on. it really it drags the whole team down like your whole team knows when there's an underperformer and uh, it really sends the wrong signal to the entire team if you hang on to them for too long so yeah basically it's easy to say this because like every time you let someone go you kind of say oh man I knew that you know <laughs> but in the moment it's really hard to have that clarity you know the hind- hindsight's twenty twenty. So every one of the people we've let go, I felt like we knew long before that we needed to. Either they had kind of moved on already mentally, or we had moved past them as an organization, or they weren't the right fit from the outset. Right? But um, everyone, you feel like I should let them go earlier. It's just that's just the nature of the game. As far as remote work horror stories go, though, you have to hire people that are really honest, that really put in good work. Uh, otherwise, you know, they might fake it for a while and then, you know, you realize you've been paying them for nothing. So it goes back to the hiring part. You know, it's like like buying a home or like making a deal in real estate. You know, you, you get it on the sale and in business with with people, you get it on the hire.
0: I mean over the last 13 years I imagine there's been lots of ups and downs. Can you walk us through any of those stories? You said either success or any, was there any point where you thought you didn't have enough money to keep going?
1: Yeah, the uh worst so worst time was um end of 2009. We had told our customers and our customers are really uh passionate like they really love wineabs. So um, when you have a really passionate group, it's a two-edged sword. And we weren't on the Mac platform at that time. And we had said for about a year, we're working on a Mac version. Well, actually, I actually have two stories here because they were both, uh, epically uncomfortable. So one was before I hired Taylor, he was kind of, he was AWOL. He wasn't really doing any work for YNAM as a contractor anymore. And, um, I had this other guy that I was using and turns out not every guy is as great as Taylor when it comes to developing or honesty. So. I was paying this guy to build this Mac version. I paid him probably, I think it was about 60 to 70 grand over a fairly, you know, six month period or so. I'd worked with him a ton on the phone, giving him feedback. He was resistant to feedback. I would say this is a bug. He would say, no, it isn't. He just wasn't very nice to work with. I didn't vet him well at all. And this was
0: year three over year four, basically?
1: This was, yeah, this was yeah. like, this would have been 2008 to, no, no, 2007. We went, yeah, because it was before Taylor. So 2007, I just didn't vet him well. I I gotten lucky with Taylor, and I just assumed it was like that with everyone else, and I was super wrong. So I ended up spending sixty grand. Then I hired Taylor, and I said, Taylor, we have this code here. You can take it to the finish line because the guy that I had hired, he was like, oh, yeah, it's done, and it wasn't done. I didn't feel like it, it was done. So Taylor's hired. He comes to me. And look, after looking at the code and he's like, Jesse, this is not like, we can't use this. This is bad. It just, it would tarnish our, our image. It's horrible in so many ways. And he basically told me we have to scrap the whole thing. And so even back then I was thinking, we're almost going to beta with this Mac version in the middle of 2008. And now we're having to rip it all out, start again. We had another false start with a firm we thought we could hire to help us go faster and we spent another 35 grand there and nothing came of it. So finally we just said okay, we're going to do it ourselves completely and that was toward the end of 2008. So I I'd, I'd wasted like 90 to 100 grand on a software that was and we had nothing to show for it. So finally Taylor just started working on it and he and I designed it together. It took us a year and we ended up bringing on contractors to help us just code faster, right? But more more heads you know don't necessarily make the work any faster a lot of the time, so we're I'm just pouring money in we were barely staying afloat as far as cash flow goes and uh I finally actually I had exhausted all of the business reserve and was now going to my personal reserve wasn't even taking money out of YNAB at all. I still had like some side gigs, and I was just kind of leaning on those to get by, so I ended up. Rating our emergency fund, like our personal fund, you know, mine and Julie's. And we, I emptied that. And then end of December 2009, uh, my credit card bill came due. And normally I would just, I just pay the credit card bill in full. You know, I just, it's no big deal. And I realized like I looked at the bank account for the business and it's like, oh, there's, there's not enough money to pay this bill. And, uh, that was a wake up call for me, both in how I was managing the business money and, uh, just how stressed. I was you know how tight things were so it was it was tough like we had moved into a new home in the middle of 2008 and uh, we didn't buy furniture for this you know it was a nice home uh well nicer than where we'd been living before that's for sure and uh, it had no furniture in it you know like it was empty for a year and a half it would kind of it had wood floors really nice wood floors and you could see them really well because there was no furniture anywhere you know so it was just wood floor and like echoes of of your voice uh in the house but Julie was a trooper and she just, she hung on. She was okay about me losing the hundred grand on software that we didn't use. She's pretty, she's super patient. And so finally, when we launched the third version, right at the end of 2009, like right at the end of the wire, it worked out, but it was, it was a nail biter for me. I, uh, I learned some things from that, that I still to this day are with me, you know, like I don't give public release dates anymore unless it's already done. And you're like, Oh, we're releasing Thursday. That's okay.
0: So, were you using you, the you need a budget kind of method yourself at that point? No, or, you
1: know, no isn't that crazy? Yeah, that's yeah. what I was going to
0: ask because I didn't know. And that's what I hear a lot about the finance guys. But then personally, they don't. So, and then I didn't know if in your case if you were just using that and then maybe not using it for the business as well. So, could you I tell, wasn't. Yeah. Could you tell us what you learned from that?
1: It's pretty embarrassing. So, it didn't. I didn't really learn from that that I should have started. Like I would do a P and l every single month and we would know how much money we've made or lost. And a lot of business owners don't even do that. That's pretty, that's pretty bad. Right. But where I failed was on looking ahead. And part of our method, I mean, our second rule is we tell people like, you got to look ahead and plan for these larger, less frequent expenses. And for me, I just realized like, Hey, I don't need to be using quick and or QuickBooks for my business. You know, you start a business, you think, Oh, I should use QuickBooks because everybody does, Right. Right. At least back then. That was definitely. Yeah. And so I just use QuickBooks and it did, it just helped me track like a post-mortem. You have a dead body and you're looking at the body and you're like, how did the body die? And that's exactly what Quicken did for me. It would just tell me like, okay, here's the damage, you know, it doesn't help you change anything. And so I did, uh, end of two, I think I'm mixing up my dates. It might have been 2010 or 2000, right? 2010 where I decided I was just going to run the business off of YNAB, like just. Forget that it's a personal finance piece of software and just run the business like that. And it's a simple business. It doesn't have like receivables and working capital requirements and bank covenants and things like that. But it, it worked really well. So I stuck with the same method. I would, I would give every dollar a job, make sure I was had my priorities right. It freed up my mind and gave me so much more relief instead of looking at this big bank balance or small. With this bank balance and kind of like finger in the wind, like, do we have enough to buy a new computer or do we have enough to hire somebody or do we, you know, everything people would ask me, like, can we do this? Can we buy this? What about this marketing initiative? I'd be like, oh, I don't know. And I was just totally finger in the wind. And so when I adopted the the YNAB method to my business, it ended up really helping me just put everything in buckets. Like, okay, here, this is for marketing. This is for new equipment. And, you know, I just start putting things in all these nice little tidy buckets. And then, when someone comes to me and says, My computer's acting really crazy, I think I need a new computer, I can go, Oh yeah, we've been setting aside money for computers, you know, for six months. So here you go. There's it was just zero stress for me in that way. Anyway, so yeah, embarrassing that I wasn't using it from the outset. I don't know why. I just it just never occurred to me. And uh now to this day I still run the business on YNAB. Works really well.
0: Yeah, so I was going to ask if you did. And then, I mean, do other people actually use it for that purpose too? Tons, or? tons,
1: yeah. yeah. Especially small business type, uh, you know, where you've got like service-based business, realtors, uh, like very cash-oriented businesses will do it. Uh, not people that run like big receivables or things like that, usually. Although anytime you've got a significant cash situation, Wineup uh, does really well helping small business owners just be more intentional with their money, be more strategic. It's fun to teach.
0: Jumping back to this horror story, what was, was the two horror stories basically the 60 K and the 35 K or was there a second story the as worst,
1: well? I mean, the worst one was carrying the credit card debt because yeah, the, the hundred grand, like all combined, that was basically one big hit that hurt. I mean, when you're, when you're like living in an empty house and you think to yourself, man, a hundred grand would have furnished this house like three, I don't know how many times over, four times over. Like that's kind of tough to swallow. And, and my wife never, she never held it against me or anything, but like I, as, as a like, I don't know like uh I'm leaving the cave and my job's to kill someone and bring it home and Julie's got her role and she's like raised I mean I think at the time we had three our fourth kid was born a few weeks before this Wineb you know this third version came out so that also probably was stressful you know So yeah Julie's like up to her ears and just trying to be you know a great mom and and all that and my my job you know and she and I have agreed on this since day one was like Hey, I'll, I'll earn the money and, um, you raise these kids and, you know, she's, that's what she always wanted to do. And so, um, and I love that. And so it's tough if you're this, you're the provider, like you've agreed on this. It's, it's tough hit to your ego to suddenly be like, yeah, I really, really screwed this up. But, um, you know, to her credit, she just never held it against me.
0: Yeah. I mean, personally, I mean, could you talk any more about the stress? Because a lot of times we hear about the business sides, But was there any personal issues during this time, too? Just because, you know, it bleeds over into that. And at the time, were you working from home or did you have your own office? Uh, At
1: at that time, I was in an office. Yeah, I kind of bounced back and forth. But uh, at that time, I was in an office and we just we were running a budget for the personal side. So and Julie could adapt to like ratcheting down. Uh, on spending and things. And I can't say that the money, like the personal money really stressed us out until I removed the emergency fund complete, completely and was starting to carry, you know, for a month, I carried that credit card debt on the business. That got me stressed. But for her, we were able to communicate enough by just doing our normal budgeting routine. You know, like, what do we got to do this month? And what, what should this money do? And it, it made it, it made it doable not super fun. You know, like we're obviously not going on trips or having doing anything extravagant really at all, but it just, it wasn't stressful in that way. Cause we were on the same page, like hey, this is what we're doing. I I feel like it's a constant refrain with me and her. Like I'm telling her, Oh, when this launches, when this happens, when this happens then, and she's always like, man, my whole life has been you just saying when this happens. So you do your thing. I'll do my thing. And, uh, yeah, we love each other, support each other. We're, we're good to go. You know, but I don't think she's waiting for like this pot of gold at the end of the rainbow that I'm always pursuing. You know, she's just, she's much more in the moment. Healthier individual, probably in that way, so
0: what do you see the for the future of your company and I said is is this the only thing you've been focusing on this whole time, and I mean because thirteen years is a long time for most people in a business
1: yeah, it is i've I mean I had some side stuff that i I kind of got rid of. I would buy and sell websites back in the day, like almost flipping them like you would real estate Bitters. or something, um, but I stopped that around two thousand nine or ten and then um I've just been focusing on wineapp completely and so I don't know what the end game is at all. I really enjoy waking up and doing what I've got on my calendar for the day. And I enjoy the strategic side of things. I enjoy thinking about the future and kind of where we want to be. I really enjoy the tech, you know, and wondering what things, how things will be different in five years with all sorts of advances that seem to be kind of coming to a head. And how that might change how people, uh, you know, are, are intentional with their money. So I, I like every aspect of that. I, I still try and push for us to be, you know, profitable, for us to grow, not headcount wise, but revenue wise. And it's still interesting to me. So I guess you're not the first person to ask me that question. So, uh, we've never taken funding. So we don't have this push like, Hey, you've got to exit. Cause if you take funding, that means you will exit for the, you know, the investor and uh, we haven't and so it gives us this other opportunity to to not have that be on our path by default and so when people ask me like what's the exit i i think i would only exit if i stopped learning stuff that i found interesting so as long as i can keep learning and and just keep finding new ways to do things or just i don't know learning anything just doing things that are of interest to me if i can do that day to day for my job i'm happy as a clam you know and i uh, wouldn't want to change it at all
0: and so we got an idea of police size, but can you give us a generalization of what where like revenues are today?
1: Yeah, we we actually have stopped. I used to share revenue more readily and we stopped about, um, I don't know, two years ago. It it kind of bit me in a negative personal way. And so I, I opt out of it now. But uh, anyway, I can go into that if you want.
0: Yeah, this is stuff that the people are listening. You never think about what happens if you do share it versus not share it because everyone's like be open. But no, I'd like to hear your perspective. Yeah, on
1: so. What happened was we would we would enter these things like fastest growing company this and you would submit your revenue and, and you'd get right, you know, audited or whatever. And then so your numbers come out. There are some negatives to it. One that's not so personal but still annoying is that you you're targeted then for prospectors. So people just see, oh, they're at this revenue mark. Oh, they're a customer of ours. They you know, and they'll just any way they can contact you. They'll get your cell phone number somehow. And so that now I was just like, ah, oh, that's lame. You know, I didn't see that coming. Um, I also never saw a material bump in our actual sales from any of those contests where we were ranked number 10 or number 20 or whatever. Um, so I was like, okay, I don't really see a lot of good coming from this. We just end up on a lot of lists where people are pitching us. And then with a few people that were, were close to me that I felt like were really good friends, it somehow tainted things. They treated me different than they had before. And it was like I was getting a different version of them than I had gotten before, which was, that's pretty upsetting because you'd like to think a really solid friendship is just kind of above any details like that. And maybe it is. And maybe I didn't have, you know, a solid friendship in that way. But I, you know, I thought I had. So it took me by surprise when I felt like I was being treated very differently. And what's also aggravating about, or specifically as a, like a transparency number, is people don't see all of the work that goes into it. And they don't know necessarily like what the bottom line is. And and so they can start make, having these uh, stories in their mind about like, Oh, wouldn't it? Wow. That must be amazing or that must be nice. And they don't realize like everything that's gone into it or what's left at the end and maybe how it's not nearly as grand as they're imagining it. And that grandeur that they imagine, I feel like is what, uh, in that, in this specific instance, what kind of tainted the relationship. So I just kind of was like, man, there are zero upsides for me. You know, and only downside. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. Anyway, it's kind of lame because I'm actually pretty open in general. And so, uh, it was upsetting to kind of have to pull back a little bit, but yeah, it is what it is.
0: Didn't ask earlier, are you 100% owner today? Or have you had any partners no, on the No, t-
1: Taylor's a part owner as well. So over time, uh, he earned in some equity. So it's me and Taylor. So I guess you've
0: been able to bounce some things off of him. But still, like, you said something about mentors earlier, but did, were you part of any other mastermind groups or anything like that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I joined a CEO group It's called Vistage. And I think there are many derivatives of this idea. But it's basically a group of CEOs, and we meet monthly. It's all guys that are different size businesses, different industries, but they're all heads of a company and they've just seen a lot of the same stuff. So you have a little bit of a common bond and it does help you discuss those issues you're talking about that you can't just discuss with anyone in the company. Um, so I've I've been a member there for about three years and that's that's really helped me think bigger, think more structurally, grow up a little bit as it relates to running a business.
0: What made you join that? Because was there a tipping point? Because I think some people get to that point. I know yeah. me personally, I got to that point recently where and now I'm trying to I'm in the process of joining some masterminds and just went to a conference with a lot of entrepreneurs who are in their own business. And man, it, it was enlightening to yeah. be able to do that.
1: It feels good to realize like, oh man, I'm not the only guy. Like are, <laughs> right, there, exactly. there are people out here that are like, I, I still remember really wringing my hands over knowing I had to fire someone that had been with me for a while, but uh, they just weren't performing. And they were pretty toxic and my group walked me through it they were like oh yeah we know exactly how you feel and i i like gave them very specific concerns and they were like they laughed they're like oh yeah those exact same you know you're like oh man okay okay i can do this you know so you you get some um, resolve in that way so yeah i anyone that's uh, the tipping point for me really was the uh, personnel growth where i just thought okay there's got to be a way where we should be doing this like there there i need to just talk to someone that's seeing a company go from, from five to 20 and from 20 to 50, like people have done this and I, I want to know what they learned. So I don't make every mistake I've been made. And so I think everyone kind of knows when they're getting there. And, uh, I wouldn't hesitate to start looking if, you know, someone listening to this is like, Oh yeah, I feel kind of alone. Like go out and find peers, you know, that are your, that are, you know, in your same arena and uh, it's, it's tremendously helpful.
0: Actually, the main reason for me doing this podcast is to, you know, those people listening, they don't really have those other entrepreneurs that they can talk to and any ideas or tricks or tips to help them is a good one. So I've just found that doing the mastermind, talking to entrepreneurs like yourself, you end up Learning a lot, even though you're not, they might not be talking to you directly. It helps to know that someone else is in a similar position. Absolutely, and uh, and, and with the Vistage, and I guess you can go to is V I S T A G E dot com. Yeah, is that Vistage? Yeah. Okay. It, are, are your group meetups just online?
1: No, no, there it's, it's locally based. So you'd find a, a Vistage chair in your area and then, uh, and join that chairs group.
0: Yeah. I find that the, the in-person thing makes it twofold better as well. Yeah. So. Yeah. Appreciate you coming on and sharing your story. I mean, if, if anyone wants to like reach out to say thanks for doing the podcast, what's the best way for them to reach you?
1: Yeah, they can just email me, uh, Jesse at YNAB.com J E S S E. And uh, happy to chat and clarify anything.
0: Uh, no, well, great. I, I appreciate you coming on and giving your story and giving some uh, tips for all those entrepreneurs out there.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Austin. Awesome. Appreciate
0: it. you know someone that needs some inspiration? Think about it. Maybe it's your best friend, your co-worker, your grandma, or maybe even your goldfish at home. Whoever it is, do them a favor and pass along episode one. Just say, Hey, bro, or hey, sis. I just listened to this sweet podcast, Millionaire Interviews. Episode one was off the chain, and I thought you'd like it too. Trust me, they'll appreciate it. Just send me a text with that. It'll be like Christmas or Kwanzaa or Hanukkah or Diwali or Ramadan. All came early, so go ahead, pass it on.